Does anyone else have a really, really deep-seated fear of being wrong? It's okay. Some of you don't, because, like, I'm sure I've talked to you before. But for me, my, my, my deepest fears of being wrong don't happen right here. They happen in the, at the door. Like, when everyone's leaving and saying goodbye, I always have this fear in the back of my mind that someone's going to say, you know, you said such and such, and that's wrong. And, like, there are times when they might say that, and I know I'm right, but there are other times where sometimes things happen, and I've said things, and I'm not sure, and, and, they, and so it happens every once in a while that one of you tells me I was wrong, and now what's going to happen is every, every one of you on the way out today who thinks you're a comedian are going to say, you know you were wrong, so I'm, I'm ready for you today, okay? It's not happening. But a couple weeks ago, it happened, right? I was just, you know, I thought everything was cool. It was a good day. Everything's great, and somebody stopped me, and they said, you're wrong. And I was like, uh, about what? And it was a couple weeks ago, I don't know, maybe you were here, maybe you weren't, but if you remember, a couple weeks ago, we talked about the tension that exists between knowing what God wants us to do and doing what God wants us to do, right? We, we talked about being the tension between hearing God's Word and doing God's Word. And he said, I, I, don't think the, I don't think the hearing thing matters. He said, I think everyone should be living all the way over on the doing side. And there was this moment where I was hesitating, and, and I think it's because I'm a millennial, like I'm only 29, so most of my conversations happen over text messages, so I'm not very good at comebacks. Like, I think of them like three weeks later, oh, I should have told him he's in cotton-headed ninny muggins or whatever it is. Like, that happens to me all the time. And, um, and so I was like really taken aback. I wasn't quite sure what to say, and I was like, I'll, I'll get back to you on that. And so over the last, the last two weeks, I realized as I was preparing to talk about tension today that I kind of was going to answer that question. Is it more important that we know or that we do? And I, and I started to realize it, and it kind of got excited because this is the last week in our four weeks that we've been talking about the tension that exists, right? And so for the last four weeks, we've been talking about how all of our life, all of our belief system, everything we do kind of requires this balance that we live in. And, there, and there's, there's, the, there's the joy, and there's sorrow, and there's hearing, and there's doing, and there's favoring people, and there's knowing people, and there's all of these tensions that exist. And we have to constantly walk this tightrope to balance that tension in our lives. And so I, I was thinking about that as I realized that what closes out this series on tension is the end of James chapter 2. Together as a church, we're walking through the book of James. It's a letter that this guy named James wrote to some people in the first century. And the book of James is this crazy good book full of awesome advice on how to live because you want to live like Jesus. And so together we're walking through it, and the first half ends at the end of chapter 2. It's on page 1196 if you have a Bible in your pew, or it'll be on the screen behind you, or you're welcome to grab your iPhone out and, and follow along with us. But in James chapter 2, he kind of addresses what might be the most important tension of all of the tensions that we've talked about. And he addresses this tension like this. He says, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. But he says, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. And you start to wonder if, if maybe this is a little more complicated than you wanted to get into. But maybe before we start talking about the difference between faith and works, I think we should talk about what, for most of us, 
whether it's right or wrong, for most of us ends up being the ultimate goal in life. And the ultimate goal in life for most of us is probably, we would say, to go to heaven, right? Like, I'm going to operate on some basic assumptions that because we live in the Bible Belt in Maysville, and I've had conversations with most of you, most of you believe that when you die, there are one of two places that you can go. What the most interesting part of that is, I have conducted many funerals, and I have counseled grieving families, and I'm waiting for the day when I go to the family's house, or they come to my office, and I say, how are we doing? And instead of saying, we're okay, we know they're in a better place, I'm waiting for the day when the family goes, (laughs) sure is hot down there, isn't it, buddy? Like, I'm waiting for that to happen. It doesn't matter who this person was, or what their relation to them was. It's always that God needed another angel, I just, I'm waiting for the person who's like, that guy was a jerk. I bet it's hot down there. Like, that's got to happen at some point, right? Someone's going to say that to me. But so, so the basic assumption is this, that, that when someone dies, they either go to heaven or all people go to heaven, or the opposite of that is that that person goes to hell. And so for a lot of us, we've spent most of our life and most of our time trying to answer the question of, of what happens when we die. How is it that we make sure that the place we get to is is heaven? And like I said, there are some people who think that as long as you breathe oxygen, that's where you're going. But I also know people who think that if you've ever watched TV for more than 30 seconds in your entire life, that hell is the only place fit for you. And I know people who think that if you danced more than to two songs at your high school prom, that hell is the only place fit for you. There's, there's this really large gap between people when they're trying to figure out which side they fit on. How is it that we make sure that we're getting to heaven? Because when Jesus came to earth in the, early, in the, in the first century, when he came to earth, he said very specifically that there are some people who will go to the good place. And there are many people who will go to the place that is the lake of fire. And he said, and the way to get to heaven is through me, through Jesus. And so this started begging the question, then how, how through Jesus do we get there? And there's this side over here who says the only way to get to heaven through Jesus is by faith, is that it doesn't matter what else you've done, it doesn't matter where else you've been, it doesn't matter who you are, that as long as some point in your life you like used the word Jesus in a positive manner, or you walked into a church, and even if you were just at a wedding, if you were in the church, as long as you did something along those lines, we can make sure that we can wrangle our way into getting you to heaven. But then there's this side over here who says, that if you ever said more than three cuss words, if you drank or you chewed or you went with a girl who, I always say that wrong, if you drank, you chew, you go with a girl that, that do or does, English, who needs it? Um, if, if, you, if, you, you know, if, you ever, if you ever told a lie, if you ever wore shorts to church, then you're not going to make it. And it's this balance that happens. It's almost as if there's this tension that exists. Because in the book of Ephesians, this guy named Paul says that, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and that it is not your own doing, but it is the gift of God. And so there's these people who say, all you have to do is say this one prayer. All you have to do is just, you know, ask Jesus one time, and that's it. That's all you have to do. And there's people over here who say, if you don't go to church and then you get hit by a bus that week, you're out of luck. 
if you get hit by a bus, you're out of luck regardless. Like, let's be honest, that sounds painful. But, but the thing about it is there's this tension that exists. Because if, if it's by Jesus we've been saved, then the only thing that matters is if Jesus is in our life, right? If it's by Jesus that we've been saved, then all that matters is if we've given our life to Christ. If we here at Highland, we teach that to give your life to Jesus, you have to be baptized and go under the water and symbolize burying your old self and coming up a new life. We teach that that's how you give your life to Jesus. And so if we say, okay, that's all that matters, the problem with that is that we're ignoring everything else that Jesus said. Because Jesus said the only way to heaven is through him. But Jesus also said to love your neighbor. Jesus didn't come to earth and say, the only way to get to heaven is through me, so just do whatever makes you happy for the first 72 years and then hope you can get in at the last minute. He said, follow me. Deny yourself. He said, feed the hungry. Clothe the naked. And so this tension keeps coming up, and there, and there seems to be this, this difficulty in the midst of it. Well, we're realizing that if we gave our life to Jesus, if we believe that he saved us, aren't there things that we're supposed to do? James says as much in James chapter 2, verse 15. He says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? And he says, so also by faith itself, if it doesn't have works, it's dead. And so what, what James is saying is if you believe in Jesus and you can believe all you want and you can talk about Jesus all you want, but if you're not doing something about the fact that you believe in Jesus, then do you really? Thomas W. Merton said that unless we act out what we believe, we don't really believe it. And so this tension keeps pulling at us where we keep saying, I, I know that in order to get to heaven, I know that in order to be a follower of Jesus, there's nothing I can do to be good enough. But then the other side of this is us saying, but Jesus is calling me to do something more. I love the way James said that when he said, to tell your friend, be warm and well fed. I want you to imagine with me that, that when we're done here in a few minutes, that you get in the car and you and your family are going to go eat at your favorite restaurant of choice. I know. I know what it is. It's cool. And so you drive down the double A and you get to the four-way stop, right? And as you're at the four-way stop, you look to your right and you see your friend, Jimmy. Okay? Everybody's got a friend, Jimmy. And you roll down your window because Jimmy's holding a sign that says, we'll work for food. And you haven't seen him for a couple weeks, so you don't really know what's going on. You say, Jimmy, what, what's the deal and he says, well, you know, I got laid off, and at the same time, my wife got sick, and, said, and, and the, kids have, the kids have been helping out some, but the, the work's not coming like we thought it would, and, and things are getting a little difficult, and the kids are getting hungry. He's like, we don't know what else to do, so we're just trying this, right? And you know, you know Jimmy, and you know his situation, and you know what, what's happening in his life, and you know what you want for him, and so what you do, right, if, you're, if you believe that all you have to do to follow Jesus is just to believe in Jesus, then what you do is as you're rolling up your window, you say, hey, buddy, hope you get some lunch, right? I don't know who still rolls their window up like this, but it's much better than going like this, so, right? But, but on the other side of this, in this tension, is you seeing Jimmy and knowing that you can help, and knowing that you can take them out to eat, 
or better yet, buy them a week's worth of groceries. And I know that sounds difficult, and I know it sounds crazy because you're like, well, I don't know anybody who's laid off, but the fact of the matter is time and time again in your life, in your scenarios, in the places you go, there are people who are in need, and what we're doing to them is we're saying, hey, I hope that works out for you. Good luck. But Jesus is calling us, and Jesus has taught us something far different. Um, When we were engaged, Whitney and I committed to reading some books to try and make sure that we were ready for marriage, and one of the most important books that we read was the book Five Love Languages. I don't know if many of you have read that book, but it's an excellent book trying to help you understand your, your spouse and your children and how they best respond to love and how they receive love. And there's a lot that goes into it. But the basis of it is, is that different people feel loved when different things happen. Your spouse might feel most loved when you perform acts of service like doing the dishes or picking up your clothes, but all you think that you need to do to show them love is say, come here, baby, at every, like, every night at bedtime. Like, that's how you think this works. But this, so, so this is important, okay? Some of you are elbowing each other, and you need to stop. This is awkward. But here's the deal. Everybody has a language of love that they respond to the best. And perhaps maybe it's best for us to understand that obedience is God's love language. That we think God's love language is for us to sing loud. We think God's love language is is for us to dress up for church. We think God's love language is any of these things. But maybe for us, the best way to understand God's love language is just to obey what he teaches us. And what he teaches us is is to believe in him. What he teaches us is to believe that only Jesus can save us, that we'll never be good enough. But then he also teaches us that just because we're saved doesn't mean we get to escape by. One of the most famous historical moments in the church happened because of this tension between faith and works. It happened in the early 15th century to a guy named Martin Luther. Now, when we say Martin Luther, some of you are thinking, I have a dream. It's not the right guy, okay? That's Martin Luther King Jr. several centuries later. We're talking about Martin Luther, who was a German guy. And Martin Luther, the German guy, was a Catholic priest. And he's a Catholic priest at a time when there's not 400 options of where to go to church in your town, so you can just Goldilocks your way to the church that you like the best. When Martin Luther is a Catholic priest, the only church in your town is the Catholic church. But he's noticing that there's a problem within the Catholic church. The Catholic church has found themselves way over on this side. And they keep figuring out that the the more they make you work and the more they make you do, the guiltier they can make you feel. And Martin Luther is reading through his Bible and he's studying the scriptures and he's seeing what Jesus said and he's realizing that Jesus has this tension. So Martin Luther reacts by coming all the way over here. And he says, no, 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 none of that matters. What matters most is that you believe in Jesus. And so there's this tension and this back and forth, and eventually it ends with what you may have remembered from your world history classes of the 95 Theses. Some of you were probably alive for that in 1450, but maybe for some of you, you remember it. It was a joke. Nobody's that old. Maybe you, maybe you remember this from class, and he nails this 95 Theses to the door, and he says, listen, this is, this is the bottom line. He's like, what matters most isn't how well you behave What matters most is that you believe in Jesus. So here's what's interesting about Martin Luther. What's interesting about Martin Luther is Martin Luther hated, 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 wrote at length, talked at length about how bad the book of James is. 
In fact, Martin Luther calls it the epistle of straw because it's not really there. It shouldn't be in the Bible. He told people that it waters down the gospel and it ruins what Jesus has done for them. He, he wrote and, and argued and tried to get the book of James taken out of the Bible because the book of James was so much about the middle of this tension that Luther didn't want anything to do with it. And he kept saying, no, 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 you have to be all the way over here. It's just about grace. It's just about grace. But the reality is, and, and Christian leaders for generations now have talked about this, that the reality is that it's not all about works, and it's not all about grace and faith, that it's about living in the tension in between. Because you see, even the Apostle Paul, who wrote the rest of the New Testament outside of a couple of books, even the Apostle Paul thinks that this tension exists, because he says this in the book of Philippians. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And so, not to say that one of the greatest thought leaders in the history of Christianity got it wrong, but I think what happened is Martin Luther seems to have missed the tension. He seems to have missed the middle ground that happens when you say, I was saved by grace. I was saved not because of anything I've done, not because of anything I've earned, but because I was saved, now I'm going to do things. Now I'm going to serve. I'm not going to serve to get saved. I'm not going to serve so that I can earn my way into heaven, but I'm going to do this out of gratitude. One of the funniest things that happens in, in our household is as Abel's learning how to speak, we're having trouble explaining to him like how to ask for things properly. And so right now, Abel, who's two and a half, uh, if he asks for something, like for instance, if he asks for a snack, he'll say, can I have a snack? And we'll say, yeah, you can have raisins. And if he doesn't want raisins or whatever it is we offer, he'll look at us and he'll say, or... And he'll just kind of hold it, and I'll say, raisins. And after I say raisins again, he says, raisins or... And I'm like, dude, there's only one choice. We don't have any groceries in the house. It's not time to go there. We're like, this is what you get. You know, and, and this is the funny thing that happens where, where there's always this moment with Abe where it's like, or what? You know, or we'll say, you can go to bed now, and he'll say, or... And we'll say, or go to sleep. Like, there's this either-or scenario for him that always happens, but sometimes when it comes to the tension that we live in, we keep saying it's faith or works. We keep saying it's sorrow or joy. But perhaps what's more important is that we understand that it's both and. That when we're following Jesus, when we're doing our best to be like him, we have to have faith and works. We have to believe that Jesus has saved us and we have to do something about it. Like Thomas Merton said, we have to be changed by what we believe. There's two stories that James wraps up chapter 2 with that I think perfectly illustrate what he's trying to talk about. And the first is the story of a guy named Abraham. If you've been around church for very long, you've heard the story of Abraham. You know the song, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham. Nope, guess we don't sing that song here. Cool, whatever. Um, but like, so Abraham is, is, a, is a guy. This is why Zach gets paid the money to lead the songs because it sure isn't me. But Abraham, 
Abraham is about 70-something years old, and God makes him this promise. And God says, Abraham, you're going to have more children than there are stars in the sky. And Abraham laughs. He laughs because he's 70-something years old, his wife is 60-something years old, and they have zero children. And he says, God, I don't know if you're aware of this, but we're, we're getting up there. And God says, I promise you, more than the sand on the seas will be your descendants. And so Abraham says, sure, 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 whatever. And so he believes, but I guess maybe he does act on it. I'm not sure. I can't answer that question for you. (laughs) But he believes. And about 30 years later, when Abraham's 100 and Sarah's 90, they have a son, their first son. And they name him Isaac. And so for 12 years, Abraham raises Isaac and Sarah raised Isaac. And so Abraham's now 112 when we get to this point in the story. He has one son. His name is Isaac. He's the only son he has. And God comes to Abraham one day and he says, Abraham, I need you to do something. So I need you to take Isaac up on top of the mountain. And while he's up there, I want you to sacrifice him to me. Right, and you know how that would go for you, right? Like, uh-uh, uh-uh, not happening. No way, I'm out, I'm done following you, I'm finding something else, this, this isn't going to work. But Abraham, he's not like you and me. And he says, okay. He says, I waited 100 years for him, but sure, why not? And so Abraham and, and Isaac start walking up the mountain, and you can imagine, right, like you can put yourself in Abraham's shoes, walking your own son, walking your only child, walking someone you love dearly up a mountain, knowing what I'm going to do right now makes no sense, and what I'm going to do right now is going to cause me more pain than I could ever imagine. I can't believe I'm about to do this, and you can imagine Abraham's, the tears just flowing down his face, and, and, and Isaac's getting more and more nervous as they get up the mountain. He's like, Dad, there's not an animal Where are we going to make this sacrifice? Where are we going to find an animal for this sacrifice? This isn't going to work. And so Abraham's just trembling, and he lays Isaac down on the the table there. They called it an altar, and he ties him down, and he realizes, I'm about to kill my own son because God came to me and said, this is what I have to do. This is crazy, but this is what he wants me to do. And Abraham raises the knife up, and his hands are trembling, and his eyes are, are just covered in tears. And as he gets close, God comes and he says, stop. There's a a ram right over there. Put him on the altar and sacrifice him. And he says, Abraham, it's because of your faith and because of your righteousness, because of your deeds that you are saved. And so it's because Abraham believed and it's because Abraham did what God called him to do that God said, you will be called righteous. And the story of Abraham continues. And the story of Abraham is the story of the Israelite nation and millions and billions of people are born as descendants of Abraham because he believed and because he did. If you're like me, though, it's, it's difficult to hear stories like the story of Abraham. It's difficult because I hear stories of, of hundred-year-old men who see miracles and who hear directly from God and have these kind of things happen, and I go, okay, yeah, sure, if God spoke to me directly, I'd probably do something about it. But it's hard for me because I'm not Abraham. I'm not righteous. I'm, I'm a screwed-up dude. 
It's hard for me because I'm not some ancient holy person. Like, I, I don't really understand this. Well, then James tells the second story, and it's the story that I relate to much more closely. And maybe for you, it's the same thing. Because the second story that James tells at the end of chapter 2 is the story of Rahab. And Rahab lived in a city called Jericho. And the city called Jericho was about to be overtaken by the Israelites, but the, but the Israelites needed some place to go where they could go in and spy on the city of Jericho as part of this battle. And Rahab happened to be the one who God used to allow them to come in and use their, and use their, their space, use her space to live there, to hide out there so that they could spy on the city and come back with the battle plan. But here's the thing about Rahab. Do you know the number one way that James describes Rahab? Do you know the number one way that the book of Joshua, which tells the story of, of Rahab, describes Rahab? She was a prostitute. She spent her entire life making her living in one of the most evil ways someone could. But you know what James says about Rahab? He says she was saved by her faith. She was saved because she was faithful enough to be willing to make the risk to, to let those guys into her house because she and they would have been killed if they were caught. She was faithful enough to take the risk to trust in the Israelites, to trust in their God, to save them. But she didn't just believe they could, she acted on it. And so here's, here's the story that I want you to hear today. The following Jesus doesn't mean compiling a lifelong list of only good deeds because you and I know that that list pales in comparison to the wrong that we've done. And following in Jesus doesn't just mean waking up one day and saying, okay, I'm following Jesus, cool. You and I know that there's a tension that exists and where we say because we believe in who Jesus is and because of what we know Jesus did for us, we're going to do something about it. And so here in the next few minutes, I, I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to take stock. Not of where you've been, not of what you've done, because I know for a lot of you, the story of Rahab sounds a lot like your story. It's the story of a messed up person who can't seem to get anything right, who's just hoping by hope that maybe that one time, that one day, they can take the risk that God says, this is, this is it. But the fact of the matter is, is that I don't need you to keep a list of all of the wrongs you've done. I just need you to take one moment and make sure that you're taking the bread and you're taking the cup and you're saying, I believe that even though I'm messed up, I believe that even though I've gotten it wrong more times than I've gotten it right, that he went to the cross and his body was broken for me. And I believe that no matter how many times I've messed up, no matter how many times I didn't do the right thing, no matter how many times I felt lazy or, un, or un, unrighteous, no matter how many times I did the wrong thing, that his blood was poured out for me. And that's all I want from you in these next few moments is for you to reflect and for you to think no matter where I've been, no matter what I've done, no matter how other people might describe me, Jesus came for me.